CD5 Kill them, she said. I kill in my own time, he said. In any case, killing unconscious people isn't right. I can't think of a more opportune time, said the lawmaster. Liesa snorted. Then I shall banish them, she said. Once they are beyond the reach of the Wierenberg's magic, then they'll have no power. They'll be simply brigands. Will that satisfy you? Yes. I am surprised that you are so merciful, Barbara... Harun. Harun shrugged. A man in my position, he can't afford to be anything else. He's got to consider his image. He looked around. Where's the next test, then? I warn you that it is perilous. If you wish, you may leave now. If you pass the test, however, you will become Lord of the Wienberg, and, of course, my lawful husband. Harun met her gaze. He thought about his life to date. It suddenly seemed to him to have been full of long, damp nights, sleeping under the stars, desperate fights with trolls, city guards, countless bandits and evil priests, and, on at least three occasions, actual demigods. And for what? Well, for quite a lot of treasure, he had to admit. But where had it all gone? Rescuing beleaguered maidens had a certain passing reward, but most of the time he'd finished up by setting them up in some city somewhere with a handsome dowry, because after a while even the most agreeable ex-maiden became possessive, and had scant sympathy for his efforts to rescue her sister-sufferers. In short, life had really left him with little more than a reputation and a network of scars. Being a lord might be fun. Harun grinned. With a base like this, all these dragons, and a good bunch of fighting men, a man could really be a contender. Besides, the wench was not uncomely. The third test, she said. Am I to be weaponless again, said Harun. Liesa reached up and removed her helmet, letting the coils of red hair tumble out. Then she unfastened the brooch of her robe. Underneath she was naked. As Harun's gaze swept over her, his mind began to operate two notional counting machines. One assessed the gold in her bangles, the tiger rubies that ornamented her toe rings, the diamond spangle that adorned her navel, and two highly individual whirligigs of silver filigree. The other was plugged straight into his libido. Both produced tallies that pleased him mightily. As she raised a hand and proffered a glass of wine, she smiled and said, I think not. He didn't attempt to rescue you, Rincewind pointed out as a last resort. He clung desperately to Two Flowers' waist as the dragon circled slowly, tilting the world at a dangerous angle. The new knowledge that the scaly back he was astride only existed as a sort of three-dimensional daydream did not, he had soon realised, do anything at all for his ankle-wrenching sensations of vertigo. His mind kept straying towards the possible results of Two Flower losing his concentration. Not even Hrun could have prevailed against those crossbows, said Two Flower stoutly. As the dragon rose higher above the patch of woodland where the three of them had slept a damp and uneasy sleep, the sun rose over the edge of the disc. Instantly the gloomy blues and greys of pre-dawn were transformed into a bright bronze river that flowed across the world, flaring into gold where it struck ice or water or a light dam. Owing to the density of the magical field surrounding the disc, light itself moved at subsonic speeds. This interesting property was well utilised by the Sorka people of the Great Neff, for example, who over the centuries had constructed intricate and delicate dams and valleys walled with polished silica to catch the slow sunlight and sort of store it. The scintillating reservoirs of the Neff, overflowing after several weeks of uninterrupted sunlight, were truly a magnificent sight from the air, and it is therefore unfortunate that Two Flower and Rincewind did not happen to glance in that direction. In front of them, the billion-ton impossibility that was the magic-wrought Wyrmberg hung against the sky, and that was not too bad, until Rincewind turned his head and saw the mountain's shadow slowly unroll itself across the cloudscape of the world. "'What can you see?' said Two Flower to the dragon. "'I see fighting on top of the mountain,' came the gentle reply. "'See?' said Two Flower. "'Harun's probably fighting for his life at this very moment.' Rincewind was silent. After a moment, Two Flower looked round. The wizard was staring intently at nothing at all, his lips moving soundlessly. Rincewind? The wizard made a small croaking noise. 
"'I'm sorry,' said Tooflower. "'What did you say?' "'All the way, the great fall,' muttered Rincewind. His eyes focused, looked puzzled for a moment, then widened in terror. He made the mistake of looking down. "'Ah!' he opined, and began to slide. Tooflower grabbed him. "'What's the matter?' Rincewind tried shutting his eyes, but there were no eyelids to his imagination, and it was staring widely. "'Don't you get scared of heights?' he managed to say. Twoflower looked down at the tiny landscape, mottled with cloud shadows. The thought of fear hadn't actually occurred to him. "'No,' he said. "'Why should I? You're just as dead if you fall from forty feet as if you fall from four thousand fathoms. That's what I say.' Rincewind tried to consider this dispassionately, but couldn't see the logic of it. It wasn't the actual falling, it was the hitting he... Twoflower grabbed him quickly. "'Steady on,' he said cheerfully. "'We're nearly there.' "'I wish I was back in the city,' moaned Rincewind. "'I wish I was back on the ground.' "'I wonder if dragons can fly all the way to the stars,' mused Twoflower. "'Now that would be something.' "'You're mad,' said Rincewind flatly. There was no reply from the tourist, and when the wizard craned around, he was horrified to see Twoflower looking up at the paling stars with an odd smile on his face. "'Don't you even think about it,' added Rincewind menacingly. "'The man you seek is talking to the dragon woman,' said the dragon. "'Hm?' said Twoflower, still looking at the paling stars. "'What?' said Rincewind urgently. "'Oh, yes, Harun,' said Twoflower. "'I hope we're in time.' "'Dive now! Go low!' Rincewind opened his eyes as the wind increased to a whistling gale. Perhaps they were blown open. The wind certainly made them impossible to shut. The flat summit of the Weirenberg rose up at them, lurched alarmingly, then somersaulted into a green blur that flashed by on either side. Tiny woods and fields blurred into a rushing patchwork. A brief silvery flash in the landscape may have been the little river that overflowed into the air at the plateau's rim. Rincewind tried to force the memory out of his mind, but it was rather enjoying itself there, terrorising the other occupants and kicking over the furniture. "'I think not,' said Liesa. Harun took the wine-cup slowly. He grinned like a pumpkin. Around the arena the dragons started to bay. Their riders looked up, and something like a green blur flashed across the arena, and Harun had gone. The wine-cup hung momentarily in the air, then crashed down the steps. Only then did a single drop spill. This was because, in the instant of enfolding Harun gently in its claws, Nine Reeds the dragon had momentarily synchronised their bodily rhythms. Since the dimension of the imagination is much more complex than those of time and space, which are very junior dimensions indeed, the effect of this was to instantly transform a stationary and priapic Harun into a Harun moving sideways at eighty miles an hour with no ill effects whatsoever, except for a few wasted mouthfuls of wine. Another effect was to cause Liesa to scream with rage and summon her dragon. As the gold beast materialised in front of her, she leapt astride it, still naked, and snatched a crossbow from one of the guards. Then she was airborne, while the other dragon riders swarmed towards their own beasts. The law master, watching from the pillar he had prudently slid behind in the mad scramble, happened at that moment to catch the cross-dimensional echoes of a theory being at that same instant hatched in the mind of an early psychiatrist in an adjacent universe, possibly because the dimension leak was flowing both ways, and for a moment the psychiatrist saw the girl on the dragon. The law master smiled. "'Want to bet that she won't catch him?' said Grecher, in a voice of worms and sepulchres right by his ear. The lawmaster shut his eyes and swallowed hard. "'I thought that my lord would now be residing fully in the dread land,' he managed. "'I am a wizard,' said Grecher. "'Death himself must claim a wizard, and he doesn't appear to be in the neighbourhood.' "'Shall we go?' asked Death. He was on a white horse, a horse of flesh and blood, but red of eye and fiery of nostril. He stretched out a bony hand and took Grecher's soul out of the air and rolled it up until it was a point of painful light. And then he swallowed it. Then he clapped spurs to his seed and it sprang into the air, sparks coruscating from its hooves. Lord Grecher, whispered the old lawmaster as the universe flickered around him. That was a mean trick came the wizard's voice, a mere speck of sound disappearing into the infinite black dimensions. "'My lord, what is death like?' 
called the old man tremulously. When I have investigated it fully, I will let you know, came the faintest of modulations on the breeze. Yes, murmured the lawmaster. A thought struck him. During daylight, please, he added. You clowns, screamed Harun from his perch on Nine Reed's foreclaws. What did he say? roared Rincewind as the dragon ripped its way through the air in the race for the heights. Didn't hear! bellowed Two Flower, his voice torn away by the gale. As the dragon banked slightly, he looked down at the little toy spinning top that was the mighty Wierenberg and saw the swarm of creatures rising in pursuit. Nine Reed's wings pounded and flicked the air away contemptuously. Thinner air, too. Two Flower's ear popped for the third time. Ahead of the swarm, he noticed, was a golden dragon, someone on it, too. "'Hey, are you all right?' said Rincewind urgently. He had to drink in several lungfuls of the strangely distilled air in order to get the words out. "'I could have been a lord, and you clowns had to go and—' Harun gasped as the chill, thin air drew the life even out of his mighty chest. "'What's happening to the air?' muttered Rincewind. Blue lights appeared in front of his eyes. "'Huh?' said Twoflower, and passed out. The dragon vanished. For a few seconds the three men continued upwards, Two Flower and the wizard presenting an odd picture as they sat one in front of the other with their legs astride something that wasn't there. Then what passed for gravity on the disc recovered from surprise and claimed them. At that moment, Liesa's dragon flashed by and Harun landed heavily across its neck. Liesa leaned over and kissed him. This detail was lost to Rincewind as he dropped away with his arms still clasped round Two Flower's waist. The disc was a little round map pinned against the sky. It didn't appear to be moving, but Rincewind knew that it was. The whole world was coming towards him like a giant custard pie. "'Wake up!' he shouted above the roar of the wind. "'Dragons! Think of dragons!' There was a flurry of wings as they plummeted through the host of pursuing creatures, which fell away and up. Dragons screamed and wheeled across the sky. No answer came from Two Flower. Rincewind's robe whipped around him, but he did not wake. Dragons thought Rincewind in a panic. He tried to concentrate his mind, tried to envisage a really lifelike dragon. If he can do it, he thought, then so can I. But nothing happened. The disc was bigger now, a cloud-swirled circle rising gently underneath them. Rincewind tried it again, screwing up his eyes and straining every nerve in his body. A dragon. His imagination, a somewhat battered and overused organ, reached out for a dragon. Any dragon. It won't work. You don't believe in them. Rincewind looked at the terrible mounted apparition grinning at him, and his mind bolted in terror. There was a brilliant flash. There was utter darkness. There was a soft floor under Rincewind's feet, a pink light around him, and the sudden shocked cries of many people. He looked around wildly. He was standing in some kind of tunnel, which was mostly filled with seats, in which outlandishly dressed people had been strapped. They were all shouting at him. "'Wake up!' he hissed. "'Help me!' Dragging the still unconscious tourist with him, he backed away from the mob until his free hand found an oddly shaped door handle. He twisted it and ducked through, then slammed it hard. He stared around the new room in which he found himself and met the terrified gaze of a young woman who dropped the tray she was holding and screamed. It sounded like the sort of scream that brings muscular help. Rincewind, awash with fear-distilled adrenaline, turned and barged past her. There were more seats here, and the people in them ducked as he dragged Two Flower urgently along the central gangway. Beyond the rows of seats were little windows. Beyond the windows, against a background of fleecy clouds, was a dragon's wing. It was silver. "'I've been eaten by a dragon,' he thought. "'That's ridiculous,' he replied. "'You can't see out of dragons.' Then his shoulder hit the floor at the far end of the tunnel, and he followed it through into a cone-shaped room that was even stranger than the tunnel. It was full of tiny, glittering lights. Among the lights, in contoured chairs, were four men who were now staring at him open-mouthed. As he stared back, he saw their gazes dart sideways. Rincewind turned slowly. Beside him was a fifth man, youngish, bearded, as swarthy as the nomad folk of the great Neff. "'Where am I?' said the wizard. "'In the belly of a dragon?' The young man crouched back and shoved a small black box in the wizard's face. The men in the chairs ducked down. "'What is it?' said Rincewind. "'A picture box? 
he reached out and took it, a movement which appeared to surprise the swarthy man who shouted and tried to snatch it back. There was another shout, this time from one of the men in the chairs, only now he wasn't sitting. He was standing up, pointing something small and metallic at the young man. It had an amazing effect. The man crouched back with his hands in the air. "'Please give me the bomb, sir,' said the man with the metallic thing. "'Carefully, please.' "'This thing?' said Rincewind. "'You have it. I don't want it.' The man took it very carefully and put it on the floor. The seated man relaxed, and one of them started speaking urgently to the wall. The wizard watched him in amazement. "'Don't move!' snapped the man with the metal. An amulet, Rincewind decided. It must be an amulet. The swarthy man backed into the corner. "'That was a very brave thing you did,' said Amulet Holder to Rincewind. "'You know that?' "'What?' "'What's the matter with your friend?' "'Friend?' Rincewind looked down at Twoflower, who was still slumbering peacefully. That was no surprise. What was really surprising was that Twoflower was wearing new clothes. Strange clothes. His breeches now ended just above his knees. Above that he wore some sort of vest of brightly striped material.' On his head was a ridiculous little straw hat with a feather in it. An awkward feeling around the leg regions made Rincewind look down. His clothes had changed too. Instead of the comfortable old robe so marvellously well adapted for speed into action in all possible contingencies, his legs were encased in cloth tubes. He was wearing a jacket of the same grey material. Until now he'd never even heard the language the man with the amulet was using. It was uncouth and vaguely hublandish. So why could he understand every word? Let's see, they'd suddenly appeared in this dragon after they'd materialised in this dragon. They'd suddenly... They'd... They had struck up a conversation in the airport so naturally they had chosen to sit together on the plane and he'd promised to show Jack Zweebloomen around when they got back to the States. Yes, that was it. And then Jack had been taken ill, and he'd panicked, and come through here and surprised this hijacker. Of course. What on earth was Hublandish? Dr. Reinswand rubbed his forehead. What he could do with was a drink. Ripples of paradox spread out across the sea of causality. Possibly the most important point that would have to be borne in mind by anyone outside the sum totality of the multiverse was that although the wizard and the tourist had indeed only recently appeared in an aircraft in mid-air, they had also, at one and the same time, been riding on that aeroplane in the normal course of things. That is to say, while it was true that they had just appeared in this particular set of dimensions, it was also true that they had been living in them all along. It is at this point that Normal language gives up and goes and has a drink. The point is that several quintillion atoms had just materialised, however they had not, see below, in a universe where they should not strictly have been. The usual upshot of this sort of thing is a vast explosion, but since universes are fairly resilient things, this particular universe had saved itself by instantaneously unravelling its space-time continuum back to a point where the surplus atoms could safely be accommodated, and then rapidly rewinding back to that circle of firelight which, for want of a better term, its inhabitants were wont to call the present. This had, of course, changed history. There had been a few less wars, a few extra dinosaurs and so on, but on the whole, the episode passed remarkably quietly. Outside of this particular universe, however, the repercussions of the sudden double-take bounced to and fro across the face of the sum of things, bending whole dimensions and sinking galaxies without a trace. All this was, however, totally lost on Dr. Reinsvond, 33, a bachelor, born in Sweden, raised in New Jersey, and a specialist in the breakaway oxidation phenomena of certain nuclear reactors. Anyway, he probably wouldn't have believed any of it. Zweiblumen still seemed to be unconscious. The stewardess, who had helped Reinsvond to his seat, to the applause of the rest of the passengers, was bending over him anxiously. We've radioed ahead, she told Reinsvond. There'll be an ambulance waiting when we land. It says on the passenger list that you're a doctor. I don't know what's wrong with him, said Reinsvond hurriedly. It might be a different matter if he was a Magnox reactor, of course. It is a shock of some kind. I've never... Her sentence terminated in a tremendous crash from the rear of the plane. 
Several passengers screamed. A sudden gale of air swept every loose magazine and newspaper into a screaming whirlwind that twisted madly down the aisle. Something else was coming up the aisle. Something big and oblong and wooden and brass-bound. It had hundreds of legs. If it was what it seemed, a walking chest of the kind that appeared in pirate stories, brimful of ill-gotten gold and jewels, then what would have been its lid suddenly gaped open. There were no jewels, but there were lots of big square teeth, white as sycamore, and a pulsating tongue, red as mahogany. An ancient suitcase was coming to eat him. Reinsvond clutched at the unconscious Weiblumen for what little comfort there was there, and gibbered. He wished fervently that he was somewhere else. There was sudden darkness. There was a brilliant flash. The sudden departure of several quintillion atoms from a universe that they had no right to be in anyway caused a wild imbalance in the harmony of the sun totality, which it tried frantically to retrieve, wiping out a number of sub-realities in the process. Huge surges of raw magic boiled uncontrolled around the very foundations of the multiverse itself, welling up through every crevice into hitherto peaceful dimensions and causing novas, supernovas, stellar collisions, wild flights of geese and drowning of imaginary continents. Worlds as far away as the other end of time experienced brilliant sunsets of coruscating octarine as highly charged magical particles roared through the atmosphere. In the cometary halo around the fabled ice system of Zeret, a noble comet died as a prince flamed across the sky. All this was, however, lost on Rincewind, as, clutching the inert two-flower around the waist, he plunged towards the disk's sea several hundred feet below. Not even the convulsions of all the dimensions could break the iron law of the conservation of energy, and Reinsvan's brief journey in the plain had sufficed to carry him several hundred miles horizontally, and 7,000 feet vertically. The word plane flamed and died in Rincewind's mind. Was that a ship down there? The cold waters of the circled sea roared up at him and sucked him down into their green suffocating embrace. A moment later there was another splash as the luggage, still bearing a label carrying the powerful travelling rune TWA, also hit the sea. Later on they used it as a raft. close to the edge. It had been a long time in the making. Now it was almost completed, and the slaves hacked away at the last clay remnants of the mantle. Where other slaves were industriously rubbing its metal flanks with silver sand, it was already beginning to gleam in the sun with the silken organic sheen of young bronze. It was still warm, even after a week of cooling in the casting pit. The arch-astronomer of Krull, motioned lightly with his hand, and his bearers set the throne down in the shadow of the hull. Like a fish, he thought, a great flying fish. And of what seas? It is in, in, indeed magnificent, he whispered, a work of, of, of true art. Craft, said the thickest man by his side. The arch-astronomer turned slowly and looked up at the man's impassive face. It isn't particularly hard for a face to look impassive when there are two golden spheres where the eyes should be. They glowed disconcertingly. Craft indeed, said the astronomer, and smiled. I, I would imagine that there is no greater craftsman on the, in, the entire disc than you, Golden Eyes. Would I be right? The craftsman paused. His naked body, naked at least were it not for a tool belt, a wrist abacus, and a deep tan, tensing as he considered the implications of this last remark. The golden eyes appeared to be looking into some other world. "'The answer is both yes and no,' he said at last. Some of the lesser astronomers behind the throne gasped at his lack of etiquette, but the arch-astronomer appeared not to have noticed it. "'Continue,' he said. "'There are some essential skills that I lack, yet I am golden eyes, silver hand, dactylos,' said the craftsman. I made the metal warriors that guard the tomb of Pichu, I designed the light dams of the Great Neff, I built the Palace of the Seven Deserts, and yet... He reached up and tapped one of his eyes, which rang faintly. When I built the golem army for Pichu, he loaded me down with gold, and then, so that I would create no other work to rival my work for him, he had my eyes put out. Wise but cruel, said the arch-astronomer, sympathetically. 
Yeah. So, I learned to hear the temper of metals, and to see with my fingers. I learned how to distinguish ores by taste and smell. I made these eyes, but I cannot make them see. Next, I was summoned to build the Palace of the Seven Deserts, as a result of which the Emir showered me with silver, and then, not entirely to my surprise, had my right hand cut off. Uh, a, a, a grave hindrance in, in your line of business, nodded the arch-astronomer. I used some of the silver to make myself this new hand, putting to use my unrivalled knowledge of levers and fulcrums. It suffices. After I created the first great light dam, which had a capacity of 50,000 daylight hours, the tribal councils of the Neff loaded me down with fine silks and then hamstrung me so that I could not escape. As a result, I was put to some inconvenience to use the silk and some bamboo to build a flying machine from which I could launch myself from the topmost turret of my prison. "'Bringing you by, by various diversions to Kral, said the arch-astronomer. "'And one cannot help feeling that some alternative occupation, lettuce farming, say, "'would offer somewhat less of a risk of being put to death by installments. "'Why do you persist in it?' "'Golden-eyes Dactylos shrugged. "'I'm good at it,' he said. The arch-astronomer looked up again at the bronze fish, shining now like a gong in the noontime sun. "'Such beauty,' he murmured, "'and unique. Come, Dactylos, recall to me what it was that I, I, I promised should be your reward. You asked me to design a fish that would swim through the seas of space that lie between the worlds,' intoned the master craftsman, "'in return for which, in return—' Yes, my, my memory is not what it used to be, purred the arch-astronomer, stroking the warm bronze. In return, continued Dactylos, without much apparent hope, you would set me free and refrain from chopping off any appendages. I require no treasure. Ah, yes, yes, I, I recall now. The old man raised a blue-veined hand and added, I, I, I lied. There was the merest whisper of sound, and the golden-eyed man rocked on his feet. Then he looked down at the arrowhead protruding from his chest, and nodded wearily. A speck of blood bloomed on his lips. There was no sound in the entire square, save for the buzzing of a few expectant flies, as his silver hand came up very slowly and fingered the arrowhead. Dactylos grunted. "'Sloppy workmanship,' he said, and toppled backwards. The arch-astronomer prodded the body with his toe and sighed. "'There will be a, a, a short period of mourning, as befits a master craftsman,' he said. He watched a blue-bottle alight on one golden eye and fly away, puzzled. "'That would seem to be long enough,' said the arch-astronomer, and beckoned a couple of slaves to carry the corpse away. "'Are the Chelinauts ready?' he asked. The master launch controller bustled forward. "'Indeed, your prominence,' he said. "'The uh, the correct prayers are, are being intoned.' "'Quite so, your prominence.' "'How long to the doorway?' "'The launch window,' corrected the master launch controller carefully. Uh, three days, your prominence. Great Artuin's tail will be in an unmatched position.' Uh, then, then all that remains, concluded the arch-astronomer, is to find the appropriate uh, sacrifices. The master launch controller bowed. The ocean shall provide, he said. The old man smiled. It always does, he said. If only you could navigate. If only you could steer. A wave washed over the deck. Rincewind and Twoflower looked at each other. "'Keep bailing!' they screamed in unison and reached for the buckets. After a while, Two Flower's peevish voice filtered up from the waterlogged cabin. "'I don't see how it's my fault,' he said. He handed up another bucket, which the wizard tipped over the side. "'You were supposed to be on watch,' snapped Rincewind. "'I saved us from the slavers, remember?' said Two Flower. "'I'd rather be a slave than a corpse,' replied the wizard. He straightened up and looked out to sea. He appeared puzzled. He was a somewhat different rincewind from the one that escaped the fire of Ankh Morpork some six months before. More scarred, for one thing, and much more travelled. 
He had visited the hublands, discovered the curious folkways of many colourful peoples, invariably obtaining more scars in the process, and had even for a never-to-be-forgotten few days sailed on the legendary dehydrated ocean at the heart of the incredibly dry desert known as the Great Neff. On a colder and wetter sea he had seen floating mountains of ice, he had ridden on an imaginary dragon, he had very nearly said the most powerful spell on the disc. He had... there was definitely less horizon than there ought to be. Hmm? said Rincewind. I said nothing's worse than slavery, said Two Flower. His mouth opened as the wizard flung his bucket far out to sea and sat down heavily on the waterlogged deck, his face a grey mask. Look, I'm sorry I steered us into the reef, but this boat doesn't seem to want to sink, and we're bound to strike land sooner or later, said Two Flower comfortingly. This current must go somewhere. Look at the horizon, said Rincewind in a monotone. Two Flower squinted. It looks all right, he said after a while. Admittedly, there seems to be less than there usually is, but... That's because of the rimfall, said Rincewind. We're being carried over the edge of the world. There was a long silence, broken only by the lapping of the waves as the foundering ship spun slowly in the current. It was already quite strong. That's probably why we hit that reef, Rincewind added. We've got pulled off course during the night. Would you like something to eat? asked Two Flower. He began to rummage through the bundle that he'd tied onto the rail, out of the damp. "'Don't you understand?' snarled Rincewind. "'We are going over the edge, God damn it! "'Can't we do anything about it?' "'No!' "'Then I can't see any sense in panicking,' said Two Flower calmly. "'I knew we shouldn't have come this far edgewise,' complained Rincewind to the sky. "'I wish—' "'I wish I had my picture-box,' said Two Flower. "'But it's back on that slaver-ship with the rest of the luggage, and—' "'You won't need luggage where we're going,' said Rincewind. "'He sagged and stared moodily at a distant whale "'that had carelessly strayed into the rimwood current "'and was now struggling against it. "'There was a line of white on the foreshortened horizon, "'and the wizard fancied he could hear a distant roaring. "'What happens after the ship goes over the rimfall?' said Two Flower. "'Who knows?' Well, in that case, perhaps we'll just sail on through space and land on another world. A faraway look came into the little man's eyes. I like that, he said. Rincewind snorted. The sun rose in the sky, looking noticeably bigger this close to the edge. They stood with their backs against the mast, busy with their own thoughts. Every so often, one or other would pick up a bucket and do a bit of desultory bailing, for no very intelligent reason. The sea around them seemed to be getting crowded, Rincewind noticed several tree trunks keeping station with them, and just below the surface the water was alive with fish of all sorts. Of course, the current must be teeming with food washed from the continents near the hub. He wondered what kind of life it would be, having to keep swimming all the time to stay exactly in the same place. Pretty similar to his own, he decided. He spotted a small green frog, which was paddling desperately in the grip of the inexorable current. To Two Flower's amazement, he found a paddle and carefully extended it towards the little amphibian, which scrambled onto it gratefully. A moment later, a pair of jaws broke the water and snapped impotently at the spot where it had been swimming. The frog looked up at Rincewind from the cradle of his hands, then bit him thoughtfully on the thumb. Two Flower giggled. Rincewind tucked the frog away in a pocket and pretended he hadn't heard. "'All very humanitarian, but why?' said Two Flower. "'It'll all be the same in an hour.' "'Because,' said Rincewind vaguely, and did a bit of bailing. "'Spray was being thrown up now, and the current was so strong "'that waves were forming and breaking all around them. "'It all seemed unnaturally warm. "'There was a hot, golden haze on the sea. "'The roaring was louder now. "'A squid, bigger than anything Rincewind had seen before, "'broke the surface a few hundred yards away "'and thrashed madly with its tentacles before sinking away.' Something else that was large and fortunately unidentifiable howled in the mist. A whole squadron of flying fish tumbled up in a cloud of rainbow-edged droplets and managed to gain a few yards before dropping back and being swept in an eddy. They were running out of world. Rincewind dropped his bucket and snatched at the mast as the roaring final end of everything raced towards them. "'I must see this,' said Two Flower, half falling and half diving towards the prow. Something hard and unyielding smacked into the hull, which spun ninety degrees and came side-on to the invisible obstacle. Then it stopped suddenly, and a wash of cold sea foam cascaded over the deck. 
so that for a few seconds Rincewind was under several feet of boiling green water. He began to scream, and then the underwater world became the deep, clanging purple colour of fading consciousness, because it was about at this point that Rincewind started to drown. He awoke with his mouth full of burning liquid, and when he swallowed the searing pain in his throat jerked him into full consciousness. The boards of a boat pressed into his back, and Two-Flower was looking down at him with an expression of deep concern. Rincewind groaned and sat up. This turned out to be a mistake. The edge of the world was a few feet away. Beyond it, at a level just below that of the lip of the endless rimfall, was something altogether magical. Some seventy miles away, and well beyond the tug of the rim current, a dhow, with the red sails typical of a freelance slaver, drifted aimlessly through the velvety twilight. The crew, such as remained, were clustered on the foredeck, surrounding the men working feverishly on the raft. The captain, a thick-set man who wore the elbow turbans typical of a great Neff tribesman, was much travelled and had seen many strange people and curious things, many of which he had subsequently enslaved or stolen. He had begun his career as a sailor on the dehydrated ocean in the heart of the disc's driest desert. Water on the disc has an uncommon fourth state caused by intense heat combining with the strange desiccating effects of octarine light. It dehydrates, leaving a silvery residue like free-flowing sand through which a well-designed hull can glide with ease. The dehydrated ocean is a strange place, but not so strange as its fish. The captain had never before been really frightened. Now he was terrified. I can't hear anything, he muttered to the first mate. The mate peered into the gloom. Perhaps it fell overboard, he suggested hopefully. As if in answer there came a furious pounding from the oar deck below their feet and the sound of splintering wood. The crewmen drew together fearfully, brandishing axes and torches. They probably wouldn't dare to use them, even if the monster came rushing towards them. Before its terrible nature had been truly understood, several men had attacked it with axes, whereupon it had turned aside from its single-minded searching of the ship, and had either chased them overboard, or had... eaten them? The captain was not quite certain. The thing looked like an ordinary wooden sea-chest, a bit larger than usual, maybe, but not suspiciously so. But while it sometimes seemed to contain things like old socks and miscellaneous luggage, at other times, and he shuddered, it seemed to be seemed to have... He tried not to think about it. It was just that the men who had been drowned overboard had probably been more fortunate than those it had caught. He tried not to think about it. There had been teeth, teeth like white wooden gravestones, and a tongue red as mahogany. He tried not to think about it. It didn't work. But he thought bitterly about one thing. This was going to be the last time he rescued ungrateful drowning men in mysterious circumstances. Slavery was better than sharks, wasn't it? And then they had escaped, and when his sailors had investigated their big chest, how had they appeared in the middle of an untroubled ocean sitting on a big chest anyway? And it had bitten... He tried not to think about it again, but he found himself wondering what would happen when the damn thing realised that its owner wasn't on board any longer. "'Rafts ready, Lord,' said the first mate. "'Into the water with it!' shouted the captain. "'Get aboard and fire the ship!' "'After all, another ship wouldn't be too hard to come by,' he philosophised. "'But a man might have to wait a long time in that paradise the Mullers advertised "'before he was granted another life. "'Let the magical box eat lobsters. "'Some pirates achieved immortality by great deeds of cruelty or daring-do. "'Some achieved immortality by amassing great wealth.' But the captain had long ago decided that he would, on the whole, prefer to achieve immortality by not dying. "'What the hell is that?' demanded Rincewind. "'It's beautiful,' said Two-Flower, beatifically. "'I'll decide about that when I know what it is,' said the wizard. "'It is the Rimbo,' said a voice immediately behind his left ear. "'And you are fortunate indeed to be looking at it from above, at any rate.' The voice was accompanied by a gust of cold, fishy breath. Rincewind sat quite still. "'Two-flower,' he said. "'Yes?' "'If I turn around, what will I see?' "'His name is Tethys. He says he's a sea-troll. This is his boat. He rescued us,' explained Two-flower. "'Will you look around now?' "'Not just at the moment, thank you. So why aren't we going over the edge, then?' asked Rincewind with glassy calmness. 
"'Because your boat hit the circumference,' said the voice behind him, in tones that made Rincewind imagine submarine chasms and lurking things in coral reefs. "'The circumference,' he repeated. "'Yes, it runs along the edge of the world,' said the unseen troll. Above the roar of the waterfall, Rincewind thought he could make out the splash of oars. He hoped they were oars. "'Ah, you mean the circumference,' said Rincewind. "'The circumference makes the edge of things.' "'So does the circumference,' said the troll. "'He means this,' said Twoflower, pointing down. Rincewind's eyes followed the finger, dreading what they might see. Hubwards of the boat was a rope suspended a few feet above the surface of the white water. The boat was attached to it, moored yet mobile, by a complicated arrangement of pulleys and little wooden wheels. They ran along the rope as the unseen rower propelled the craft along the very lip of the rimfall. That explained one mystery. But what supported the rope? Rincewind peered along its length and saw a stout wooden post sticking up out of the water a few yards ahead. As he watched, the boat neared it and then passed it, the little wheels clacking neatly around it in a groove obviously cut for the purpose. Rincewind also noticed that smaller ropes hung down from the main rope at intervals of a yard or so. He turned back to Two Flower. I can see what it is, he said. But what is it? Two Flower shrugged. Behind Rincewind, the sea troll said, Up ahead is my house. We'll talk more when we are there. Now I must row. Rincewind found that looking ahead meant that he would have to turn and find out what the sea troll actually looked like, and he wasn't sure he wanted to do that yet. He looked at the rimbow instead. It hung in the mists a few lengths beyond the edge of the world, appearing only at morning and evening when the light of the disk's little orbiting sun shone past the massive bulk of Great Archuin, the world turtle, and struck the disk's magical field at exactly the right angle. A double rainbow coruscated into being. Close into the lip of the rimfall were the seven lesser colours, sparkling and dancing in the spray of the dying seas. But they were pale in comparison to the wider band that floated beyond them, not deigning to share the same spectrum. It was the king colour, of which all the lesser colours are merely partial and wishy-washy reflections. It was octarine, the colour of magic. It was alive and glowing and vibrant, and it was the undisputed pigment of the imagination, because wherever it appeared it was a sign that mere matter was a servant of the powers of the magical mind. It was enchantment itself. But Rincewind always thought it looked a sort of greenish purple. After a while, a small speck on the rim of the world resolved itself into an ayat or crag, so perilously perched that the waters of the fall swirled around it at the start of their long drop. A driftwood shanty had been built on it, and Rincewind saw that the top rope of the circumfence climbed over the rocky island on a number of iron stakes and actually passed through the shack by a small round window. He learned later that this was so that the troll could be alerted to the arrival of any salvage on his stretch of the circumfence by means of a series of small bronze bells balanced delicately on the rope. A crude floating stockade had been built out of rough timber on the hubwood side of the island. It contained one or two hulks and quite a large amount of floating wood in the form of planks, bulks and even whole natural tree trunks, some still sporting green leaves. This close to the edge, the disc's magical field was so intense that a hazy corona flickered across everything as raw illusion spontaneously discharged itself. With the last few squeaky jerks, the boat slid up against a small driftwood jetty. As it grounded itself and formed a circuit, Rincewind felt all the familiar sensations of a huge occult aura. Oily, bluish-tasting, and smelling of tin. All around them, pure, unfocused magic was sleeting soundlessly into the world. The wizard and two flowers scrambled onto the planking, and for the first time Rincewind saw the troll. It wasn't half so dreadful as he'd imagined. Hmm, said his imagination after a while. It wasn't that the troll was horrifying... Instead of the rotting, betentacled monstrosity that he had been expecting, Rincewind found himself looking at a rather squat but not particularly ugly old man who would quite easily have passed for normal on any city street, always provided that other people on the street were used to seeing old men who were apparently composed of water and very little else. It was as if the ocean had decided to create life without going through all that tedious business of evolution and had simply formed a part of itself into a biped and sent it walking squishily up the beach. 
The troll was a pleasant, translucent blue colour. As Rincewind stared, a small shoal of silver fish flashed across its chest. "'It's rude to stare,' said the troll. Its mouth opened with a little crest of foam and shut again in exactly the same way that water closes over a stone. "'Is it? Why?' asked Rincewind. "'How does he hold himself together?' his mind screamed at him. "'Why doesn't he... spill?' If you will follow me to my house, I will find you food and a change of clothing, said the troll solemnly. He set off over the rocks without turning to see if they would follow him. After all, where else could they go? It was getting dark and a chilly, damp breeze was blowing over the edge of the world. Already the transient rimbo had faded and the mists above the waterfall were beginning to thin. Come on, said Rincewind, grabbing Two Flower's elbow. But the tourist didn't appear to want to move. "'Come on,' the wizard repeated. "'When it gets really dark, do you think we'll be able to look down "'and see great Artuin, the world turtle?' asked Two Flower, staring at the rolling clouds. "'I hope not,' said Rincewind. "'I really do. Now let's go, shall we?' Two Flower followed him reluctantly into the shack. The troll had lit a couple of lamps and was sitting comfortably in a rocking chair. He got to his feet as they entered and poured two cups of a green liquid from a tall pitcher. In the dim light he appeared to phosphoresce, in the manner of warm seas on velvety summer nights. Just to add of a rock gloss to Rincewind's dull terror, he seemed to be several inches taller, too. Most of the furniture in the room appeared to be boxes. Er, uh, really great place you've got here, said Rincewind. Ethnic. He reached for a cup and looked at the green pool shimmering inside it. It had better be drinkable, he thought, because I'm going to drink it. He swallowed. It was the same stuff Two Flower had given him in the rowing boat, but at the time his mind had ignored it because there were more pressing matters. Now he had the leisure to savour the taste. Rincewind's mouth twisted. He whimpered a little. One of his legs came up convulsively and caught him painfully in the chest. Two Flower swirled his own drink thoughtfully while he considered the flavour. Galen livid, he said. The fermented vul nut drink they freeze distill in my home country. A certain smoky quality... Piquant. From the western plantations in, uh, Rehigreed province, yes? Next year's harvest, I fancy? From the colour? Uh, may I ask how you came by it? Plants on the disc, while including the categories known commonly as annuals, which were sown this year to come up later this year, biennials, sown this year to grow next year, and perennials, sown this year to grow until further notice, also included a few rare re-annuals, which, because of an unusual four-dimensional twist in their genes, could be planted this year to come up last year. The wool nut vine was particularly exceptional in that it could flourish as many as eight years prior to its seed actually being sown. Wool nut wine was reputed to give certain drinkers an insight into the future, which was, from the nut's point of view, the past. Strange, but true. All things drift into the circumference in time, said the troll, gnomically, gently rocking in his chair. My job is to recover the flotsam, timber, of course, and ships, barrels of wine, bales of cloth, you. Light dawned inside Rincewind's head. It's a net, isn't it? You've got a net right on the edge of the sea. The circumference, nodded the troll. Ripples ran across his chest. Rincewind looked out into the phosphorescent darkness that surrounded the island and grinned inanely. Of course, he said. Amazing. You could sink piles and attach it to reefs and, good grief, the net would have to be very strong. It is, said Tethys. It could be extended for a couple of miles if you found enough rocks and things, said the wizard. Ten thousands of miles. I just patrol this league. That's a third of the way round the disc. Tethys sloshed a little as he nodded again. While the two men helped themselves to some more of the green wine, he told them about the circumference, the great effort that had been made to build it, and the ancient and wise kingdom of Krull, which had constructed it several centuries before, and the seven navies that patrolled it constantly to keep it in repair and bring its salvage back to Krull, and the manner in which Krull had become a land of leisure ruled by the most learned seekers after knowledge, and the way in which they sought constantly to understand in every possible particular the wondrous complexity of the universe. 
and the way in which sailors, marooned on the circumference, were turned into slaves and usually had their tongues cut out. After some interjections at this point, he spoke in a friendly way on the futility of force, the impossibility of escaping from the island except by boat to one of the other 380 isles that lay between the island and Kral itself, or by leaping over the edge, and the high merit of muteness in comparison to, for example, death. There was a pause. The muted night roar of the rimfall only served to give the silence a heavier texture. Then the rocking chair started to creak again. Tethys seemed to have grown alarmingly during the monologue. There is nothing personal in all this, he added. I, too, am a slave. If you try to overpower me, I shall have to kill you, of course, but I won't take any particular pleasure in it. Rincewind looked at the shimmering fists that rested lightly in the troll's lap. He suspected they could strike with all the force of a tsunami. I don't think you understand, explained Twoflower. I am a citizen of the Golden Empire. I'm sure Krull would not wish to incur the displeasure of the Emperor. How will the Emperor know? asked the Troll. Do you think you're the first person from the Empire who has ended up on the circumference? I won't be a slave, shouted Rincewind. I'd, 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 I'd jump over the edge first. He was amazed at the sound of his own voice. "'Would you, though?' asked the troll. The rocking chair flicked back against the wall, and one blue arm caught the wizard round the waist. A moment later the troll was striding out of the shack, with Rincewind gripped carelessly in one fist. He did not stop until he came to the rimwood edge of the island. Rincewind squealed. "'Stop that, or I really will throw you over the edge,' snapped the troll. "'I'm holding you, aren't I?' "'Look.' Rincewind looked. In front of him was a soft black night, whose mist-muted stars glowed peacefully, but his eyes turned downwards, drawn by some irresistible fascination. It was midnight on the disc, and so therefore the sun was far, far below, swinging slowly under great Artuin's vast and frosty plastron. Rincewind tried a last attempt to fix his gaze on the tips of his boots, which were protruding over the rim of the rock, but the sheer drop wrenched it away. On either side of him two glittering curtains of water hurtled towards infinity as the sea swept around the island on its way to the long fall. A hundred yards below the wizard, the largest sea salmon he had ever seen flicked itself out of the foam in a wild, jerky and ultimately hopeless leap. Then it fell back, over and over, into the golden underworld light. Huge shadows grew out of that light like pillars supporting the roof of the universe. Hundreds of miles below him, the wizard made out the shape of something, the edge of something. Like those curious little pictures where the silhouette of an ornate glass suddenly becomes the outline of two faces, the scene beneath him flipped into a whole new terrifying perspective. Because down there was the head of an elephant, as big as a reasonably sized continent. One mighty tusk cut like a mountain against the golden light, trailing a widening shadow towards the stars. The head was slightly tilted, and a huge, ruby eye might almost have been a red supergiant that had managed to shine at noonday. Below the elephant, Rincewind swallowed and tried not to think, below the elephant there was nothing but the distant, painful disk of the sun and sweeping slowly past it was something that, for all its city-sized scales, its crater-pox, its lunar cragginess, was indubitably a flipper. "'Shall I let go?' suggested the troll. "'Nah,' said Rincewind, straining backwards. "'I have lived here on the edge for five years, and I have not had the courage,' boomed Tethys. "'Nor have you,' if I may judge. He stepped back, allowing Rincewind to fling himself on the ground. Twoflower strolled up to the rim and peered over. Fantastic, he said. If only I had my picture box. What else is down there? I mean, if you jumped off, what would you see? Tethys sat down on an outcrop. High over the disc, the moon came out from behind a cloud, giving him the appearance of ice. My home is down there, perhaps, he said slowly. "'Beyond your silly elephants and that ridiculous turtle. "'A real world. "'Sometimes I come out here and look, "'but somehow 
I could never bring myself to take that extra step. A real world, with real people. I have wives and little ones somewhere down there. He stomped and blew his nose. You soon learn what you're made of here on the edge. Stop saying that, please, moaned Rincewind. He turned over and saw Two Flower standing unconcernedly on the very lip of the rock. Nah, he said, and tried to burrow into the stone. There's another world down there, said Two Flower, peering over. Where exactly? The troll waved an arm vaguely. Somewhere, he said. That's all I know. It was quite a small world, mostly blue. So why are you here? said Two Flower. Isn't it obvious? snapped the troll. I fell off the edge. He told them of the world of Bathys, somewhere among the stars, where the sea folk had built a number of thriving civilizations in the three large oceans that sprawled across its disk. He had been a meat man, one of the caste which earned a perilous living in large, sail-powered land yachts that ventured far out to land and hunted the shoals of deer and buffalo that abounded in the storm-haunted continents. His particular yacht had been blown into uncharted lands by a freak gale. The rest of the crew had taken the yacht's little rowing trolley and had struck out for a distant lake, but Tethys, as master, had elected to remain with his vessel. The storm had carried it right over the rocky rim of the world, smashing it to matchwood in the process. At first I fell, said Tethys, but falling isn't so bad, you know. It's only the landing that hurts, and there was nothing below me. As I fell I saw the world spin off into space until it was lost against the stars. What happened next? said Two Flower, breathlessly glancing towards the misty universe. I froze solid said Tethys simply. Fortunately, it is something my race can survive, but I thawed out occasionally when I passed near other worlds. There was one, I think it was the one, with what I thought was this strange ring of mountains around it that turned out to be the biggest dragon you could ever imagine, covered in snow and glaciers, and holding its tail in its mouth. Well, I came within a few leagues of that. I shot over the landscape like a comet, in fact and then I was off again. Then there was the time I woke up and there was your world coming at me like a custard pie thrown by the Creator. And well, I landed in the sea not far from the circumfence, Widdershins of Krull. All sorts of creatures get washed up against the fence, and at the time they were looking for slaves to man the way stations. And I ended up here. He stopped and stared intently at Rincewind. Every night I come out here and look down. He finished. I never jump. Courage is hard to come by. Here on the edge. Rincewind began to crawl determinedly towards the shack. He gave a little scream as the troll picked him up, not unkindly, and set him on his feet. Amazing, said Two Flower, and leaned further out over the edge. There are lots of other worlds out there. Quite a number, I imagine, said the troll. I suppose one could contrive some sort of, I don't know, some sort of a thing that could preserve one against the cold, said the little man thoughtfully. Some sort of a ship that one could sail over the edge and sail to far-off worlds, too. I wonder... Don't even think about it, moaned Rincewind. Stop talking like that, do you hear? They all talk like that in Kral, said Tethys. Those with tongues, of course, he added. Are you awake? Two Flower snored on. Rincewind jabbed him viciously in the ribs. I said, are you awake? <sighs> We've got to get out of here before this salvage fleet comes. The dishwater light of dawn oozed through the shack's one window, slopping across the piles of salvage boxes and bundles that were strewn around the interior. Two Flower grunted again and tried to burrow into the pile of furs and blankets that Tethys had given them. Look, there's all kinds of weapons and stuff in here, said Rincewind. He's gone out somewhere. When he comes back, we could overpower him and... Uh, well, then we can think of something. How about it? That doesn't sound like a very good idea, said Two Flower. Anyhow, it's a bit ungracious, isn't it? Tough buns, snapped Rincewind. This is a rough universe. 
He rummaged through the piles around the walls and selected a heavy, wavy-bladed scimitar that had probably been some pirate's pride and joy. It looked the sort of weapon that relied as much on its weight as its edge to cause damage. He raised it awkwardly. Would he leave that sort of thing around if it could hurt him? Two Flower wondered aloud. Rincewind ignored him and took up a position beside the door. When it opened some ten minutes later, he moved unhesitatingly, swinging it across the opening at what he judged was the troll's head height. It swished harmlessly through nothing at all and struck the doorpost, jerking him off his feet and onto the floor. There was a sigh above him. He looked up into Tethys's face, which was shaking sadly from side to side. "'It wouldn't have harmed me,' said the troll. "'But nevertheless, I am hurt. Deeply hurt.' He reached over the wizard and jerked the sword out of the wood. With no apparent effort, he bent its blade into a circle and sent it bowling away over the rocks until it hit a stone and sprang, still spinning, in a silver arc that ended in the mists forming over the rimfall. "'Very deeply hurt,' he concluded. He reached down beside the door and tossed a sack towards Two Flower. "'It's the carcass of a deer that is just about how you humans like it, and a few lobsters, and a sea salmon.' The circumfence provides, he said casually. He looked hard at the tourist and then down again at Rincewind. What are you staring at? he said. It's just that, uh, said Two Flower. Compared to last night, said Rincewind. You're so small, finished Two Flower. I see, said the troll carefully. Personal remarks now. He drew himself up to his full height, which was currently about four feet. "'Just because I'm made of water doesn't mean I'm made of wood, you know.' "'I'm sorry,' said Two Flower, climbing hastily out of the furs. "'You're made of dirt,' said the troll. "'But I didn't pass comments about things you can't help, did I? "'Oh, no, we can't help the way the Creator made us, that's my view.' But if you must know, your moon here is rather more powerful than the ones around my own world. The moon, said Two Flower. I don't understand. If I've got to spell it out, said the troll testily, I'm suffering from chronic tides. A bell jangled in the darkness of the shack. Tethys strode across the creaking floor to the complicated device of levers, strings, and bells that was mounted on the circumfence's topmost strand, where it passed through the hut. The bell rang again, and then started to clang away in an odd jerky rhythm for several minutes. The troll stood with his ear pressed close to it. When it stopped, he turned slowly and looked at them with a worried frown. "'You are more important than I thought,' he said. "'You are not to wait for the salvage fleet?' You're to be collected by a flyer. That's what they say in Kral, he shrugged, and I hadn't even sent a message that you're here yet. Someone's been drinking vulnut wine again. He picked up a large mallet that hung on a pillar beside the bell and used it to tap out a brief carillon. That'll be passed from length man to length man all the way back to Kral, he said. Marvellous, really, isn't it? It came speeding across the sea, floating a man-length above it, but still leaving a foaming wake as whatever power that held it up smacked brutally into the water. Rincewind knew what power held it up. He was, he would be the first to admit, a coward, an incompetent, and not even very good at being a failure. But he was still a wizard of sorts. He knew one of the eight great spells. He would be claimed by death himself when he died, and he recognised really finely honed magic when he saw it. The lens skimming towards the island was perhaps twenty feet across and totally transparent. Sitting around its circumference were a large number of black-robed men, each one strapped securely to the disc by a leather harness, and each one staring down at the waves with an expression so tormented, so agonising, that the transparent disc seemed to be ringed with gargoyles. Rincewind sighed with relief. This was such an unusual sound that it made Two Flower take his eyes off the approaching disc and turn them on him. "'We're important, no lie,' explained Rincewind. "'They wouldn't be wasting all that magic on a couple of potential slaves,' he grinned. "'What is it?' said Two Flower. "'Well, the disc itself would have been created by Fresnel's wonderful concentrator,' said Rincewind authoritatively. 
That calls for many rare and unstable ingredients, such as demon's breath and so forth, and it takes at least eight fourth-grade wizards a week to envision. Then there's those wizards on it, who must all be gifted hydrophobes. You mean they hate water? said Two Flower. No, that wouldn't work, said Rincewind. Hate is an attracting force, just like love. They really loathe it. The very idea of it revolts them. A really good hydrophobe has to be trained on dehydrated water from birth. I mean, that costs a fortune in magic alone. But they make great weather magicians. Rain clouds just give up and go away. It sounds terrible, said the water troll behind them. And they all die young, said Rincewind, ignoring him. They just can't live with themselves. Sometimes I think a man could wander across the disc all his life and not see everything there is to see, said Two Flower, and now it seems there are lots of other worlds as well. When I think I might die without seeing a hundredth of all there is to see, it makes me feel, he paused, then added, well, humble, I suppose, and very angry, of course. The flyer halted a few yards hubward of the island, throwing up a sheet of spray. It hung there, spinning slowly. A hooded figure standing by the stubby pillar at the exact centre of the lens beckoned to them. "'You'd better wade out,' said the troll. "'It doesn't do to keep them waiting. It has been nice to make your acquaintance.' He shook them both wetly by the hand. As he waded out a little way with them, the two nearest loathers on the lens shied away with expressions of extreme disgust. End of CD 5